This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device via podcast. I'm Toby Hemmings. 2021 is coming to a close and for many of us, it's the dog days of a long year. While 2020 may have been the year where the world was upended, 2021 has not been the return to normalcy that many of us were hoping for. Today, in our final new episode for the year, we're looking back at the big stories, from COVID-19 to Christian Porter, and examining how well the media did in covering the stories that defined the year. Joining me in studio is Kishore Napier-Rahman, federal politics reporter for Crikey. Via Zoom, we're also joined by Jacqueline Maley, columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and Rachel Baxendale, political reporter from the Australian's Melbourne Bureau. Jacqueline Maley, Rachel Baxendale, and Kishore Napier-Rahman, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Let's start with the pressing topic of the day, as much as we might not want to cover it. COVID is the undisputed biggest story of the year, and it seems that it's ending the year with a bit of a bang. There's a lot of uncertainty around the new variant spreading, Omicron. Uh, Given the limited information we have around this variant, I suppose I should open by asking, what do you think journalists should have learnt from covering Delta that they can then apply into covering this new variant. And I might start with you, Rachel. As you were sort of introducing us to that question, I kind of thought about, well, where were we this time last year? And I think we were all, there was this feeling of certainty that 2021 couldn't possibly be as bad as 2020, that, you know, eventually we're all going to get vaccinated and things were going to be much better. Certainly in Victoria, we'd got, you know, lockdown had worked against the pre-Delta variant and, Although it was long and painful, we had got through that. And I think there was sort of this feeling that, you know, even if even if we ended up with more cases, even if we got more leaks out of hotel quarantine, you know, we were going to be able to deal with that. I am still optimistic. You know, we are in New South Wales and Victoria today. We've got, in Victoria, I think we've got the highest case numbers that we've had in six weeks. New South Wales has got the highest case numbers they've ever had. But we're not... 
seeing, and, and yes, it's early days, there's a bit of a lag effect. We're not at this stage seeing the numbers of deaths and hospitalisations that A, corresponded with these sorts of case numbers in, you know, first and second wave or even with Delta. So I think that should be cause for great optimism. But I guess it is, you know, a bit of an unfortunate reminder that we're not out of this, that we are not just going to snap back to 2019 normal. Possibly, I think, because everyone's vaccinated, moving into a phase in our lives where and I welcome this, where we possibly will have a little bit less government control and we might have to take a bit more personal responsibility. We might have to, you know, use common sense and get a rapid antigen test if we know we're going to be seeing older, more vulnerable people, for example. Kishore, what about you? What do you make of how we can cover Omicron going forward? Well, I think the thing to say is what we're seeing at the moment was always like utterly, utterly predictable. So we knew when we opened up, we were going to eventually see a rise in cases. It obviously took some weeks for that to really kick into gear in New South Wales. But we knew this was going to happen. We knew that at some point there probably would be a new variant. And I think the thing to say about Omicron was it seems to me that there's still a lot we don't really know about it. But what's been fascinating is to see that the responses to Omicron have kind of fallen down very predictable lines. So you've got people who have generally been a bit more, I would say, risk averse or maybe to be less polite, alarmist in how they viewed the COVID situation, sort of being glass half empty about Omicron, you know, pointing to the fact that they think it might evade vaccines, pointing to one small study about how effective AstraZeneca is against it and holding that up. And then on the other hand, you've got the the COVID optimists, the half glass full type people who have talked about how, you know, it's maybe a milder variant. And I think both camps probably are partially right on some aspects of Omicron. The fact is that we just don't know a huge amount. So I think the thing to say here for a, from a perspective of a journalist covering it is I think to... I guess, be very wary of how little we know and maybe be a bit humbled about that. Take with a grain of salt any kind of prescriptive, definitive sort of prediction about what's going to happen. A really interesting example of that is, you know, yesterday, Brad Hazard came out with this figure that, you know, we could have 25,000 cases a day in Sydney, New South Wales, rather, in January. Now, We've seen throughout the pandemic lots of big modelled numbers being thrown out and sometimes they've been accurate, often they've been not accurate. Those numbers do scare people, they make a good headline, they make a good news lead, but often I think that that has to be tempered with a bit of, like Rachel was just saying, people taking their own personal responsibility for things and also an understanding that, yeah, this is just going to be the next phase of the pandemic. It was always going to look like that. Reopening with high case numbers was always going to lead to this kind of situation and it's deeply unfortunate that that could ruin Christmas and New Year for a lot of people. But I think we've got to keep a sense of calm about the place because I think that is important too, given how stressful and anxiety inducing these last however many months have been for most of the country. If we can jump backwards in time to the dominant variant for the majority of the year, Delta, there was a bit of a narrative being pushed by certain journalists and medical experts regarding AstraZeneca. Now, at that time, there was a lot of rhetoric around that AstraZeneca was a subpar vaccine for protection against the Delta variant. And also, there was a lot of concern regarding the extremely rare blood clotting side effects. Kishore, if I can take you back, do you think that the media was too quick then to write AstraZeneca off, particularly given what would then transpire in later months? Sure. I think the media did make a lot of errors around AstraZeneca. I think part of that was, you know, there were tabloid papers, you know, putting 
AstraZeneca blood clot shame and putting pictures of people in hospital with a clot on the front page and splashing that around. I think that was, in retrospect, very dangerous and even at the time quite dangerous. I think you also had quite prominent media experts and commentators who I think were generally quite risk averse about all of the pandemic. And I think maybe put that risk aversion into how they assess the effectiveness of AstraZeneca and really overhyped both the side effects and how effective it was. But equally, I would say the media is not the only sort of institution that was at fault there. I think the messaging out of the government on AstraZeneca was quite hopeless. I mean, Scott Morrison holding a press conference, was it like 11 minutes after Atagi had given him new advice about the risk factors and not communicating that very well. Atagi itself not communicating that very well. Labor mm. not communicating it very well because they had a vested interest in trying to own Scott Morrison. So I think everyone made a bunch of mistakes there around AstraZeneca. And yes, in retrospect, it meant that we perhaps didn't get the speedy uptake of the vaccine rollout that we could have got. I was very proud to have gotten my AstraZeneca jab back in the middle of the year. And Me yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And look, purely anecdotally, but having been in close contact situations, having known other people with AstraZeneca that have been in super spreader events and not picked up COVID. I mean, seems to be doing doing some work. <laughs> I love that we've reached the stage of politicisation of the pandemic, but we're now having like, you know, <laughs> vaccine branding wars. AstraZeneca <laughs> was always the Chad vaccine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're, you're the AstraZeneca heroes out there in front. Jacqueline, do you think that we are really focusing on vaccines as the dominant way of dealing with this virus? Is there something else that we should be potentially looking at going forward? Well, I think a couple of things. I do think it'll be interesting to see how the booster rollout goes because this is purely anecdotal, but I've been trying to get a booster for Pfizer and haven't been able to get one for love or money around where I live. And I just wonder if the government has been caught a bit short in terms of supply for boosters that will be extremely politically disastrous for them, I would say. And the, the other general point I'd make is just there's a conflict. There has been a conflict the whole way along between government and the sort of health authorities who want to push a public health message and also, I suppose, a political message and journalists and the media who are not in the business, actually, of public health messaging. That's not our job. It's the environment in which we should operate, for sure, and we should operate with responsibility and with always with a view to the highest ethical standards. You know, an example that I was thinking about was Dominic Perrottet at his press conference yesterday. There's some people who think that Dominic Perrottet is going too too hard and too fast with, you know, New South Wales opening up. There's all these scary sort of statistics around that Kishore was just talking about in terms of modelling. And he was sort of chastising the media for focusing on case numbers when he wants the media to focus on hospitalisations and death rates. Now, I can see why he wants people to focus on that stuff. And I think it's probably for the better of the psychological health of the community if we focus on just hospitalizations and death rates rather than huge case numbers. But it's just sort of an interesting thing because who's he to tell journalists which numbers they should and shouldn't report? Like if there's case numbers to be reported, they're facts that we should present to our readers or our listeners. And then on the other side, you have the AstraZeneca scare campaign. I mean, that it was treated irresponsibly, I suppose, by some media. But again, if people are getting blood clots from the vaccine that's being rolled out pretty quickly, like that kind of is a story, right? So I don't know. I think there's just been a sort of clash. And the thing that 
I found even more tedious than, you know, the pandemic itself is just the extreme politicization that we've seen and the fact that, yeah, you have to have a position on a vaccine brand or, you know, <laughs> strong positions that, that people have on lockdowns or on masks even. I mean, it, it just, it strikes me that that is a very modern disease that they maybe didn't have in the Spanish flu epidemic or, you know, the Black Plague. That is just very much a sort of symptom of social media, I suppose. Continuing on from what Jacqueline was saying about the politicisation of this, I think that's been a really interesting thing as a journalist. I mean, I think in Victoria, Daniel Andrews is very good at kind of setting up a, you know, you're either with me or against me kind of dichotomy, which I think is very often a false dichotomy. And very often his line has been the journalist and the way he kind of projects to Victorians is to sort of imply that if you're even questioning what I'm doing here, you're somehow, you know, against the health advice and, you know, you basically want to kill Victorians. And um, that's been kind of a, a, an interesting position to find yourself in as journalists. And I think as journalists, we've got better at it, I think, in Victoria throughout the two years of really fighting to say, well, well, no, we're not questioning the health advice. There's conflicting health advice. There are different experts saying different things. It's our job to question this and make sure that, you know, we really are doing the best we can. I totally agree. And the Dan Andrews thing is like, there is no higher moral ground than I'm on the side of protecting people's lives. You're either with me or against me. And if you're against me, you're essentially trying to kill people. Like there is no higher moral ground than that. And it's it's also so disingenuous the way that politicians have tried to convince us throughout the pandemic that they don't have any sort of difference in interest to the public health authorities, when of course they do. I'm not saying that they've been blatantly political in their treatment of people's lives or people's safety, but they have a different set of interests. And it's our job to sort of try to pick apart that different set of interests, which I would say, you know, a lot of people think is happening in New South Wales at the moment, where there's a bit of divergence mm. maybe between the political sort of interests of the government and what the public health authorities think we should be doing. Building off of that, it must be hard to be a journalist in these situations, attempting to critique power and actually interrogate these decisions regarding the health advice when on social media you have cheerleaders, basically, people acting for the government who are quite vocally pro or quite vocally anti-government actions in 240 characters or less. I mean, Rachel, you've been really on the front line of this scrutiny from the Twitterati, whoever you want to call them, these these people who are, are tweeting about this. How do you navigate that when you're just trying to do your job? Yeah, look, I've kind of got used to it. There was a point sort of in the middle of 2020 where there was kind of this sudden wave and, you know, all of a sudden I was weirdly trending on Twitter and it was all quite bizarre and it took me a little while to come to terms with it and you know, I probably took to heart a lot of stuff that I really shouldn't have and, and wouldn't now. For better or worse, I think I've developed a pretty thick skin. But conversely, that's our job to work out how to get at the truth. And we will face obstacles in doing that. I think, you know, that social media probably is uh, an obstacle that previous generations of journalists haven't had to deal with in quite the same way. But it's also a double-edged sword. I think, you know, as time went on, I realised 
that, you know, as much as I was dealing with all kinds of nonsense and death threats and rape threats and nasty stuff on Twitter, for every one of those, I was getting 10 really nice messages. And more to the point, from the perspective of doing my job, I was getting messages from people who were giving me really interesting stories and they knew where to find me, whereas previously they might not have and might not have, you know, realised that that was a way that they could sort of shed light on what they were going through. Kishore, I know you're also hopelessly <laughs> online. In terms of how you've seen this year play out online, do you think there is a divide between people who are consuming news media outside of social media and and how they see what's been unfolding as opposed to people who are, you know, following these profiles, who are tweeting out these things in often quite inflammatory mm. and high modality language? For sure. It always fascinates me when I log on and I find, you know, Regular people, they're not in the news media or anything like that, but they spend, what, 20 hours a day on Twitter and have very strong opinions about specific journalists and, and go down wormholes of all these absurd conspiracy theories about the way an ABC news presenter contorted her face when talking about Dan Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk <laughs> as opposed to Dom Perez and shit like that. And I'm just like... Oh my God, go outside and touch grass for God's sake. I mean, I'm I'm on this platform all the time and I rationalize it because it's like, I don't know, important to my job or some rubbish, but you guys have no excuse. Like, get off, do normal stuff. I don't know. But yeah, no, I think it's probably just been a symptom of so many people being sort of stuck indoors for a long time. And the COVID situation is unique in that we've not had a singular story that's dominated everything in that kind of way in anyone's lifetimes, really. While some aspects of the COVID response have fallen down partisan lines, I think what's been really interesting is how some things about COVID have sort of fractured those partisan lines. Traditionally, you had a lot of progressives who are, I would say, quite pro things like lockdown and, you know, border closures and that kind of thing out of this sort of progressive protecting the community kind of ethos. But then interestingly, you had more libertarian-minded people on the left of politics who ended up agreeing with IPA guys and people on Sky News because they came at it from a lot more of a, I suppose, anti-authoritarian progressive perspective. I think all of those kind of fissures that were going on within existing ideological groupings I think made people a bit more insane because you're like suddenly seeing people that you've agreed with about so many things all your life on the different team with COVID. And again, it goes back to what we we're talking about before with the politicization of the response and the tribalism of everything like that, you know, add in the being stuck at home, being able to do nothing but post and doom scroll and that kind of like weird partisan shifting that was going on, that idea of wanting to be on a certain team on the COVID front. And I think it just did cook a lot of people's brains. And, and that's probably why my mentions are often so cursed every time I say the word Victoria in a tweet. <laughs> my column is in the Sunday Age as well as the Sun-Herald in, in Sydney. And I must say, whenever I ventured into talking about Dan Andrews, you just get so much. Well, you get a lot of anger and emails as well as tweets, but there are also other people who are like, thank you for questioning the line on this. But it's kind of a weird position to be in because you're like, this is the readership of the age, right? So mm. how much how much do you write against your readers? Like mm. how much do you sort of want to alienate like the readership? I've had conversations with the Sunday Age editor where he's like, just be really careful, man, because you're not down here and everybody here is going through this really difficult time and everyone's a bit crazy. So just, just tread lightly. You are writing for your readers. And it's interesting to hear from both of you that, you know, as people in Sydney, that every time you mention Victoria, you get a certain kind of reaction. 
And certainly that's the case for me. And I guess writing from a national paper, there's often the perception of, of us bashing Victoria, even though, you know, I live here and I'm living it. And, you know, it was interesting the way we as a Melbourne bureau for a national paper, I think sometimes the things we were writing were possibly slightly different angles from what other parts of the paper were writing. And I think that's probably the beauty of being in a national paper is that you can and you should be writing for your whole audience. And challenging people and possibly people in Melbourne didn't like what people in Sydney and the US were saying, but it might have made them question their views. And conversely, people in Sydney might not have liked what the perspective they were getting from Melbourne at times, but at least they were sort of getting a sense of how things were being felt on the ground. I think just to add to that as well, one of the other sort of breakdowns we've had during this pandemic is a real case of state versus state parochialism that I don't think has really existed beyond like the state of origin normally. Like, I don't think many people thought of Australia really as a federation before last year, but really every state's had, I think, quite a profoundly different experience of the pandemic. And every state, despite having that experience, most people have kind of appreciated what their state leaders have done. I mean, you know, in New South Wales, that I think explains some of the enduring popularity of Gladys Berejiklian, despite mm. ICAC and all that kind of thing. I think a lot of people were like, well, cool, we didn't cop what Melbourne copped last year and, and that kind of thing. And similarly in Victoria, a lot of people were like, well, you know, Dan Andrews helped us stay safe and sacrifice and get through a really difficult time. And so I think people kind of project criticisms from outside and think that people just don't understand what they've been through. The uniqueness of their experience is probably the same in WA every time someone talks about the border and, you know, does a little jig at them losing their ashes test, right? Like everyone's got that <laughs> deeply reaffirmed sense of state parochialism, which has been weird to watch, I suppose. We are seeing audiences fragment in certain ways. We are also seeing, and if I can take us back to Melbourne, a lot of protesting, particularly down there against the lockdowns with some really unsettling images. I guess considering that we're seeing more of the audience fragment in that way, where some people are really anti what the political decisions are being made and willing to protest in quite confronting ways. But then on the other hand, some audiences are just completely dropping off. They're not interested in COVID. If you're trying to cover these more extreme points of views, how do you do it in a responsible way? But also, how do you keep audiences informed without basically grinding them down on COVID, COVID, COVID? And I guess I'll start with you, Kishore. It's interesting that you said that people might be getting alienated because, you know, certainly as someone who works at a smaller subscription-based publication, our subscription numbers have been going really crazy for the last two years. And I think, I don't know, maybe some of that was, again, people being stuck at home, but it's been, I don't know, people have been interested in the news and people have been interested in subscribing and reading what we have to say. In terms of the how do you cover the, the crazies sort of element, I sometimes feel like there's almost been a bit too much of a kind of there's ongoing sort of live blogging and filming of like every rally now. And it's sort of like, we've done it. We know what they're about. And I think that's something that needs to be stressed when we look at these people is they are a really, really small minority of Victorians. I mean, I say Victorians because they seem to be happening more so in Melbourne. And I think that's probably just like a symptom of Melbourne being more locked down than any city of the world. And given that, the fact that there is only a small minority of the city that are losing their brains and doing all this, you know, horrible imagery and that kind of thing probably speaks to the fact that most people are just like pretty normal and have done the right thing, got vaccinated, stayed home when they're asked and all that. So I think there is sometimes maybe a risk of inflaming the depth of the sort of anger out there and how big an impact these people 
do have. On the other hand, though, I mean, because obviously I cover federal politics and the only thing people want to think about right now is who's going to win the next election. In that kind of context, it only takes a few people going down those rabbit holes, you know, preferencing UAP and that kind of thing to really put the whole electoral math a little bit off kilter. So I think that it is worth looking at the impacts that they could have in terms of how far their influence might grow. But I think we've also got to be very sober about how many people we're talking about here and how all this stuff is pretty marginal at the end of the day. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Like you, you look at the the vaccination rates, I think it, overall for Australia, it's nearly 90%. And in individual states, it's higher, which is extraordinary, really. And, you know, we're a country that actually loves vaccination. We're good at doing what we're told. You know, and we have really strong public health programs. And I think a lot of Australians are quite proud of that. But yeah, it is really hard to sort of balance that with also reporting on these extreme elements, because they're absolutely worth reporting on, and particularly given that the intelligence authorities in Australia at the federal level and at the state level are now looking at far-right neo-Nazi elements as being sort of the bigger terror threat. And some of these elements are floating rather assiduously with politicians. So, you know, I wrote a story a couple of days ago about this so-called freedom ball. You know, a lot of these types of people, a lot of them actually flying up from Melbourne and Craig Kelly is one of the speakers and is very much fraternising with these people. Craig Kelly is a member of parliament who was until recently a member of the government. So yeah. it's like, I think it's, I know there's sort of a whole thing about no platforming and all that stuff. And I get that. But I also think, well, you got to report on that stuff, particularly if it's, as you say, sort of infecting or, or brushing with our political system and the parties within it. Yeah, I think it's a huge challenge. I think by completely ignoring something like this, you are treating it differently and I guess adding to these groups' arguments to some extent, but by the same token, you don't want to give them too much attention and you know validate them. I guess the other issue I think is that, yes, there are some really dangerous, really awful elements involved in these protests, but there also are some people who don't see themselves as being part of that and aren't part of that and aren't yet radicalised. And I mean, in Victoria, there were people who had completely legitimate concerns from a human rights perspective, from a legal perspective about the Andrews government's pandemic laws concern about that from groups like the Victorian Bar Council and, and human rights groups ultimately fed into some pretty important reforms to that legislation. Some of those people were rocking up to, to these protests. There were also, you know, other really ordinary people who might have had the not entirely unreasonable view that they didn't think that their children should be banned from going to school camp because they hadn't been vaccinated which I think is, you know, a little bit different from mandatory vaccination for, for adults, particularly given the elevated risk that COVID has for older people. But I just worry that in kind of lumping all these people in with each other and basically saying if you are at the protest, you're a neo-Nazi, risks radicalising people because they feel as though they're being treated differently, even though they might not be that different from the mainstream and they're probably sort of at the mainstream end of you know a scale that does sort of pretty quickly go pretty extreme if you look at who was there there's like a sort of persecution complex or a sense of victimhood that goes along with some of that sort of anti-vax vaccine hesitancy and also a sort of weird feeling of being somehow a bit special like part of it not an elite but like a sort of special crew who knows stuff that other people don't know 
and it's privy to information that, you know, the ordinary folk who read the mainstream media and stuff are not privy to. So, yeah, you have to be really careful not to stoke that because I don't think I don't think you win arguments that way, I guess. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we were saying about social media before and about, you know, the extent to which we've become extremely fragmented and siloed and people can sort of fall one way or the other and once they fall the other way, they're they're not getting their news from the mainstream media. They don't trust the mainstream media. They're getting all their news from some crackpot on the internet. There's only so much that the media can do, but I think we do have some responsibility to try to bring people with us. Let's move off COVID, I think. (laughs) Let's move on to one of the other biggest stories of the year, and that would be the treatment of women, particularly in politics. Now, the real litany of stories that came up with uh, Grace Tame being named Australian of the Year, then Brittany Higgins going public with her story in February, Chanel Contos and her work around sexual assault, and the March for Justice in Canberra and across the country. It really felt as though this year in particular was a watershed for these stories, Jacqueline, how do you see it? Do you think that there was just something about 2021 that led us to this moment or has this been percolating for a while now? I mean, you've got to say that it's an evolution of the Me Too movement. I I don't think you can really see what's happened this year in any other context. And in Australia, we have had within the media a lot of difficulty reporting Me Too stories because of the heaviness of our defamation laws. So, I mean, it's been interesting in a way that we've had these victim survivors or, you know, whatever you want to call them, these young women who themselves have sort of stood up and talked about their experiences. And, you know, in the case of Grace Tame, she, of course, famously was legally gagged from speaking about her experience for a long time, you know, before her activism meant that 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 law, particular law, was changed. So, yeah, it's definitely an evolution of Me Too. And you've just had this, I don't know, you've just had these incredibly strong, and, you know, this is a word that's kicked around a lot, but very brave young women. What I love particularly about Grace Tame, and everybody has their own different style, but people criticise Grace Tame for being too rude or too impolite or like she's biting the hand that fed her because she was appointed Australian of the Year and now she's being really critical of the government. And I don't know, I just feel like you're really missing the point if you expect an activist of her sort of style to be polite and nice and to not say things that annoy people and to not say things that rock the boat. I think she's marvellous. And then you have someone like Chanel Contos who is coming from a very particular demographic and who's just kind of taken the lid off what is essentially the other end of the spectrum, I suppose, from rape and sexual abuse, which is the lower level sexualization of young men, I suppose. And the fact that, as she says, young men experimenting with their sexuality often means that young women get hurt. And that's just sort of the way it has always worked. And she's saying, well, maybe there's a different way we could do that, or maybe we could teach boys a different way. So I don't know, I've looked upon it with great awe, actually, all of it unfolding. And I think that there's been a lot of cant at the federal government level in terms of handling this stuff. But I also think that even the cant that we've seen shows that they can't brush it under the carpet anymore. And even if it's just because of fear of exposure, that a lot of people will be behaving differently and protocols will perhaps work differently differently within Canberra from now on. 
it has felt as though this year, on top of this, there has been a lot levied at the behaviour of politicians. I mean, it was this year when we had the allegations surrounding Christian Porter and his press conference in March. We've also recently had the Jenkins report into behaviour at Parliament House and its, I guess, status as a workplace environment. Now, for many people... You could easily just say it's politicians behaving badly. This is pretty normal stuff. But at the same time, there is this sense that the public is frustrated by this. Kishore, is this more than the usual politicians behaving badly? I mean, you're working at Parliament House at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the public frustration exists for a very good reason. And I think it's probably not more than the usual. It's just that people are paying a little bit more attention to it. I think, as as Jacqueline rightly points out, it's sort of maybe belated dregs of Me Too hitting, but also a constellation of factors falling into place. The response from the federal government has, to me, seen you know quite lacklustre. It's often been one of those things. And I think the Morrison government approaches a lot of things like this as a political issue to be quickly resolved and ridden out. And I think that that has sort of framed a lot of the response to sexual harassment and sexual assault in, in Parliament House and to the Jenkins report um, in general. I, I think one other thing that struck me just being in Parliament the week that that report got handed down, firstly, from the media perspective, you know, there were male newsroom figures without naming any names who who sort of downplayed from what I heard a lot of both what was in the report, but also stuff like the allegations against Alan Tudge that happened later that week. And that was genuinely quite fascinating to me as well. But another point as well is that the Jenkins report actually contained some really interesting stuff about culturally and linguistically diverse people, people from LGBTI backgrounds, and how those other identities intersected and led to an even greater sense of marginalisation within Parliament House. And it it was fascinating to me as a journalist working in one of the whitest places I've ever encountered in all of Australia that looks nothing like the rest of the country, how little attention this part of the Jenkins report got from from the sort of surrounding media discourse uh, as well, because it strikes me that, you know, all of these things kind of go together and are are important and you know when that gets overlooked. I guess I found the Jenkins report really interesting from the perspective of having been a reporter in Canberra a few years ago now and having had staff both Labor and Liberal come to me with pretty well documented cases of pretty lengthy periods of systematic bullying by their bosses. You know, I've kind of thought for a long time about the extent to which Parliament House is so different from just about any other workplace in that there is no HR department and basically every MP's office is their own little fiefdom where, you know, where if they're a really nice person, it's a great place to work. But very often because of the combative nature of politics, the fact that you've got to have a pretty unreasonably high opinion of yourself to even get into politics in the first place so often does mean that it's a pretty, pretty awful place to work. And I think it will be really interesting to see how they go about fixing that. I guess the other thing that I sort of find interesting looking forward is that I I feel one of the sort of main challenges that this whole movement that we've seen this year is up against is the, you know, the difficulty in proving a lot of these things in court. Obviously, you know, the Brittany Higgins case is currently before the courts. And I I guess conversely, you know, allegations against Christian Porter and Alan Tudge haven't been tested in court, but nonetheless, there have been, you know, pretty 
irreversible consequences for them that have happened as a result of that. And I think what we're dealing with now is kind of moving to a paradigm where justice is in some ways measured out outside courts. And I I think that sometimes that might have good outcomes, sometimes it may have unjust outcomes, and I think it'll kind of be interesting to see how that pans out in other cases as time goes on. Yeah, the Christian Porter matter, I found one of the most difficult stories to report on that I've ever had to tango with. I mean, like a lot of people, I got the written statement like a like a long mm. time before it came out, and I just remember reading it as deeply shocking and you just think, well, there's no way that this can be published because of the defamation laws, but also because there is no way of verifying it. You know, you don't have any contemporaneous accounts and you would completely destroy a person's reputation by doing so and their, their livelihood and their life. You know, it was just the stakes were too high with too little sort of independent verification. But but then, of course, it came out anyway, and we all had to find a way to dance around it. And it was sort of a matter of gradually, bit by bit, people got more and more on the record of what of what the alleged victim had written in her statement of a few years ago. I still think about that a lot and think about whether or not it was fair, whether or not it was right, whose interests were served. It was a really, really tricky one. And... Obviously, it's all washed out now and Christian Porter's political career is basically over. I, I still don't know with that one. It's a really, really tricky one. Me either. I mean, I think it really does come down to the fact that there is no way of knowing what happens when you've got one key witness is dead and, you know, the other one's obviously not going to incriminate himself. And even though, you know, in the eyes of so many people, he's been found guilty, um, even though, you know, a court could never find him so given the lack of, of evidence. I agree. And then I go back to first principles as a journalist and you think, well, a historical rape allegation against the attorney general is a story. Like, you, you know, oh, absolutely I mean? like it is. That, so you think, well, of course it has news value. It has huge public interest value. And then you have to work your way through the ethics and the legal minefield of it. But to go back to first principles, yeah, I mean, anyone who says that wasn't a story is not a, it's not a journalist. No, it was always a story. Yeah. yeah. Before we look towards 2022, I did want to ask each of you, are there any stories that you thought deserved more attention but ultimately got lost in the the swirl of this past year? And I'll start with you, Jacqueline. Well, I was going to say sort of sports rorts and those, you know, we had a sort of rash, I think that was this year, we had a rash of stories about various grants programs and the car park grants programs. I would have said that, however, in recent days, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age have published this incredible sort of digital journalism, which is all about the, the sort of gross disparity in grants, government grants. You know, they've gone through sort of scores and scores of government grants and found the gross disparity between the money awarded to coalition electorates and, and marginal electorates and those that go to Labor and other electorates. So that's sort of been, I guess, amended a little bit by um, the great journalism of my own organisation. But, yeah, I do feel like because the public got so distracted by, you know, the threats to our existence <laughs> that COVID represented, some of those transparency rorting stories got a little bit buried or a little bit like, you know, everybody got a bit tired and distracted to follow them up, perhaps. Yeah, I completely agree. For so much of this year, I have been reporting on COVID and nothing else. And yes, it was the story, but it has been really 
frustrating that there just hasn't been the time that there would be in a different year to put in those FOI applications. And I guess with my sort of Victorian political reporter's hat on, there's been a bit more attention, you know, in recent months and obviously with the IDAC inquiry down here on branch stacking. But I think everyone in Victoria knows that it's not just limited to the one branch of the Labor Party that's being investigated in IBAC. I think just the issue generally, and Jacqueline was getting at it earlier, of the use of taxpayers' money for basically for party political benefits is a pretty big theme and, and one that I hope we'll have a bit more time to devote to as, as journalists next year. Kishore, how about you? Look, for me, I would have to say um, the story of Australia's withdrawal from Afghanistan was criminally underfollowed and didn't sort of get the attention it deserved purely because I think, well, a bunch of reasons. Firstly, it happened in August and, you know, the whole country was sort of in some form of lockdown and everyone was losing their minds about that. But more importantly, I think that, you know, the way Australia delayed sending an evacuation flight despite getting warned for months and years that people that we'd worked with were at serious risk of being murdered by the Taliban and and just didn't really do anything about it. It was a moment of real great moral failure to me. Also because for the months before we we sort of, the media knew about it and, you know, some of us did cover and write about it. But again, those stories just don't seem to get the traction. They don't, ministers don't get asked about them in press conferences. Ministers don't front up to press conferences ever. So really it fell by the wayside. And at the end of the day, we really, we took in a fraction of the number of people that we could have. We gave out fewer humanitarian visas than several past liberal prime ministers have given out in similar situations. I mean, this is our our longest war and we left with a whimper and we left in a moment of real humanitarian failure, I think. And that really didn't get talked about enough. You know, this is, again, just a fraction of the stories that deserve the attention that, uh, unfortunately, COVID has sucked up. Looking forward into 2022, the big story will be that it is a federal election year. What do you expect to come to the surface? What are you keeping your eyes on going into the new year? And I'll start with uh, you, Rachel. It's interesting sort of comparing this federal election with the most recent one. In 2019, you know, there was a very strong expectation from the vast majority of political journalists, and I was one of them, I I have to grudgingly admit, that Bill Shorten was going to sail into power. And I guess there's caution this time about what the polls say and, and exactly how things will pan out. I guess the other thing that I will be watching and and find interesting is we do have this sort of unprecedented number of independents running this time around and it will be really interesting to see what happens there. Thirdly, going back to COVID, I think it will be really interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, state governments have in a lot of ways been the ones who have really taken control with that issue. But I think there is, certainly in Victoria, in in a lot of the electorates, and a lot of them are really safe, Labor, Western suburbs, outer suburban, Labor electorates that were really hard hit by COVID. Pulses and, and just anecdotally, people are picking up a huge amount of disengagement in places like that. People who feel that even though they've historically been pretty strong Labor voters, they're not necessarily overwhelmingly happy with Daniel Andrews and, and Anthony Albanese. They're looking for an alternative. They're not at this stage convinced 
the the coalition are that alternative. And I think it'll be really interesting to see, I guess on the one hand, in the seats that they're running, um, which is sort of in Melbourne, more of an eastern suburbs, um, regional thing, how well the independents do out of that. Um, and that's more in Liberal-held seats. But I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how minor parties do in some of those traditional Labor seats where people aren't necessarily all that happy but that probably don't want to vote for the Liberals. Mm. Jacqueline, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess the big story of the year next year that we know about thus far will be the election. And I've been writing a bit on the independents, the independent candidates in the sort of metropolitan seats in Sydney and I think that's a really interesting story. I'm excited about covering it because it's just, it's always got lots of juicy, fun stuff like politics coverage and election coverage can be so samey and so bland. You know, the local members, like more interesting characters in Sydney, you've got Wentworth, which is, you know, lots of big eastern suburbs names. Like, you know, it's kind of a little bit like Warringah, but not, you know, it has a different demographic as well. Like, I just think all that stuff's kind of interesting on a human level. And also it's just a really interesting expression of democracy that, you know, the two-party system, particularly in relation to climate, has just proved so ineffectual at sort of resolving any real policy on that matter. The This sort of renaissance of independence is a way that the system has found to kind of amend that or to, to bring a solution to that. And I think it's really interesting that they're all women and they're all sort of of a similar ilk in that they're sort of quite highly educated successful women they're kind of exactly the kind of people that the liberal party in an alternative universe where they're a little bit more functional at a branch level would be pre-selecting for themselves so i think that's really interesting like i'm kind of keen to to cover all that stuff and then i think you know just going back to what we were saying before i just think there would have been so many politicians and you know high-level bureaucrats who were sort of rubbing their hands with glee during the pandemic that journalists weren't finding out about this secret and weren't finding Mm. out about that dead body that they buried. I think it might be good reckoning in terms of putting in FOIs, trying to dig around some of the programs that the government's been running or, you know, trying to uncover stuff that I suppose has been lost in the fog of war of the last year or so. Mm. Kishore, how about you? Well, look, frankly, I'm more excited about the World Cup next year. But look, if we if we must talk about the election and, and we must on, on this kind of podcast, then yeah, that will obviously suck up so much of the oxygen over the first few months of next year. And for me, everyone is really burned and jaded by 2019 because like Rachel said, there was this very strong narrative about short and romping home. And that seemed to be what was, we all thought that was going to happen. And then it didn't. And so now everyone's second guessing themselves, which I think is kind of good because I don't know if journalists and pundits should spend too much time being in the business of crystal ball tea leaf reading. I think you should just be trying to like, you know, report what's happening and on the ground and, and, and all that. And people can just be patient and wait to election night and then you can find out who will win and, and that you'll all find out then it will happen. Unless of course there's a hung parliament, which is quite a distinct possibility for next year. But at the moment, I, I think one of the things that interests me about this is we found out coming out of 2019, where it was a very tight election result, we had quite a divided country, you know, over issues like climate. The divisions are really deep and they're really fierce. And you did also have a huge amount of voter disengagement. I mean, there was a huge primary vote for parties like One Nation in a lot of those key central Queensland seats. So seeing how big the vote for UAP and One Nation is next year will be really interesting. But the crucial thing to me is that because everyone's had a different experience of the pandemic and because the pandemic's been so unpredictable. I mean, we saw this Omicron thing emerge just when everyone was getting a little bit more relaxed. 
how that election goes will, will be so much contingent on like when Scott Morrison calls it for the mood of the country at the time and that kind of thing. And really, it's going to depend so much on people's vibe at that time that that the next three years could really be determined by what is a very temporary sort of feeling. And even looking beyond that, we've got a couple of options. We either have a change of government and potentially a minority government, which would be a radical, radical departure from the politics we've seen over the last, whatever, eight, eight nine years. On the alternative to that is a re-election of the Morrison government, who really, what do they really want to do? It's, it's not very clear what their agenda would be for another term. You know, their election pitches the COVID situation is probably better here than the rest of the world. So it's really like, what happens then? You've got three more years of a, a government that doesn't seem to be able to get much through parliament, doesn't seem to have a very strong agenda in, in terms of what they believe in. So yeah, it, it could be an exciting time, I guess, for some of us. <laughs> uh, what a note of optimism oh, to end this. Yeah, end well, end look, last year I, I, I said that 2022 would be deeply cooked because of vaccines. And unfortunately I was kind of right. Wow. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, joining Fourth Estate today, everyone. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Thank you to my guests, Jacqueline Maley, Kishore Napier-Raman, and Rachel Baxendale. Before we go, we'd like to pay tribute to Glenn Daniel, a renowned figure of Sydney Radio for 39 years, who passed earlier last week. Tina Quinn was one of the many journalists fortunate enough to be mentored by Glenn. She recorded this tribute to him. Last week, Australian radio lost one of its giants, the renowned journalist and presenter Glenn Daniel. Glenn actually began his career at the very station that we bring you for the state from each week, 2CR 107.3 here in Sydney. Glenn leaves a huge hole in our industry. Over the last number of decades, he mentored an extraordinary amount of young journalists who were coming up in the industry. He gave many of them their first job. I was one such journalist who benefited greatly from his mentorship. I can say from first-hand experience that nobody was more generous with their time or with their spirit. He was a mentor to many and a friend to all. Thank you, Tina, and thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a whole lot in between. We'll be back with more in 2022. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell, 